Our text, as you know, will be from Galatians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10, and then we'll read through verse 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Beginning then at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, but... The man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but, but God is one. Is the Lord then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if, there had not, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We are all the children of God by faith in in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, 
but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We read God's word to that point and now direct our attention to the words of our text in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Though it might not be that explicit, beloved, our text is a text that mentions the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it does that in verse 4, God sending forth his Son made of a woman. And in doing so, our text reminds us that the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ means nothing on its own. The mystery of Bethlehem means nothing without the mystery of the cross. They are inseparable. The conception and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem has no significance without what took place on Calvary. And so our text ties those two truths and those two facts, even those two events in the life of Christ together. Verse 4, speaking of his incarnation, and verse 5, speaking of what he did and what he accomplished by his death on the cross. What was begun in Bethlehem, verse 4, was finished at the cross of Calvary, verse 5. And that, beloved, points to what makes us most interested as God's people in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not simply interested in things earthly. We're not simply interested, children, in a holiday and in gifts and in time with family. And we're not simply interested either in his birth on its own, standing alone from everything else that Christ did. 
But we are interested with regard to the birth of Christ in something spiritual. What was accomplished not merely by his birth, but what was accomplished also by his death on the cross. That's what we direct our attention to then in the words of our text. Before we do that, though, notice that what is unique about this particular text concerning the incarnation of Christ is that it mentions when God sent him. You recall that last Lord's Day we considered from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, why God sent him. Why did God send him? God sent him to save sinners. God sent him to save chief sinners. And now our text today speaks of the when of God's sending. Answers the question when and points us to God's perfect timing in sending his Son into this world. Let's consider then when Christ came to earth in the fullness of time. And notice with me God sending his Son, God's perfect timing, and God's gracious purpose. We do well, beloved, to notice first of all from our text that God is the subject here. God is the subject of all that is mentioned. God is doing things. Having said that, we don't mean to minimize or to ignore what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He too did things in connection with his incarnation and his coming into this world. He did marvelous things, even the marvelous thing of coming into this world. A remarkable display of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, willing in great love for those whom God had eternally given to him to become a man willing to be poor, willing to be of no reputation, willing to take upon him the form of a servant, willing to empty himself, willing to be humbled, willing to be obedient even unto the death of the cross. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Christ was willing to do for us. But God's work is on the foreground here. The text says, God sent forth his son. Jesus Christ's entering into this world through his conception and through his birth was the work of God. 
It was the fulfillment of the sovereign will of God, and it was accomplished by the almighty power of God. The text declares, therefore, what God did and what God does. God brought a wonder to pass. God sent his Son into this world. It was not the work of men. Men were not involved in making this happen. Men did not even desire this or request this of God. God sent his Son. God accomplished the work of salvation from beginning to end. But notice, his Son was sent by him sent forth by him. And that speaks to us of something that was very humbling as well as very difficult for the Son of God, for Christ. Literally, he was sent out by God or sent away by God. God sent his beloved Son away from himself. God sent his beloved son away from the blessed perfection and glory and splendor of heaven. God sent his son away from the presence of the angels who glorified and praised him night and day. God sent his son away from his heavenly home, from blessed fellowship within the triune family of God. He sent his son away from all of that and sent his son into a world of sin that stands in sharp contrast to the glories and the blessedness of heaven. A world that is full of sin, a world full of death, a world full of misery, a world full of suffering, a world that is under the curse of God a world that is under God's wrath, a world that was filled with and still is filled with sinners. And here the Son of God was born to sinful parents, raised by sinful parents, living with them, surrounded by sinners who hated God and who opposed him at every turn throughout his whole lifetime. Liars and deceivers, hypocrites and adulterers and murderers. What a contrast to heaven. And yet God said to his son, that's where I send you. And that's where you must go. I send you away from myself to go down into that sinful, wretched world. How Christ had to humble himself to be sent away by God from heaven to earth. And 
It was also humbling, as the text mentions, because God sent him through a woman. Made of a woman, the text says. We stand before a miracle there, a wonder, something that is beyond our ability to comprehend that the Son of God was born from a human, that the Son of God was conceived in a human, a miracle and a wonder that was performed by the Holy Ghost so that the child in this woman, Mary, was God's son. God himself inside a human creature. The creator inside a creature. A miracle. But that miracle that is mentioned in our text declares again a message of humility and shame and suffering for Jesus Christ. And we're not even speaking here of his birth. We know that his birth was shameful, his birth was lowly, but we're speaking here merely about his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That was humbling for him. Mary was not a famous or a noble woman. Mary was not a princess or a queen in whom the Son of God was conceived and from whom he would be born. Not in the eyes of men. And not according to her human standing in society. She was, of course, a princess in the eyes of God. The Word of God speaks of the fact that every believing girl and woman is a princess and even a queen in God's eye. A marvelous thing. But not in the world's eye. And not in the eyes of the church at that time. There was nothing noble about Mary. She was basically an unknown woman. Poor, lowly, and insignificant. Having even a very ignoble ancestry. Think of some of the terrible sinners that were in her ancestors, including even some that came from paganism. And Christ was conceived in that woman, that lowly woman, Mary. And in addition to that, Mary was herself a sinner. Made of a woman who was a sinner, not a sinless woman, not as the Roman Catholic Church claims that Christ was born to an immaculate, a pure, a sinless mother. She was a sinner. And the Son of God developed and was born from a woman. He had to go to the cross to save, 
along with everyone else whom he saved. Humbling for him. But even more humbling and even more significant is what the text says, that he was made under the law. God put his son under the law. He put his son under all of the law's requirements. He put his son under the demands of the law of God, the demand to love God perfectly, the demand to obey every commandment of God, and the demand to obey God perfectly even while God throughout his whole lifetime, and then especially as he hung on the cross, inflicted upon him the heaviest hand of the wrath of God that could ever be inflicted and was ever inflicted on anyone. And God said, you must love me through it all. The divine lawgiver, that's who he was, was placed under the demands of the law of God. And that included even this, as the context of chapter 3 points out very clearly, and that's why we read it, for example, in verse 13, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, so that when God placed his son under the law, he placed him under the curse of the law. He put the curse on him, the curse of the law on him. Christ could have claimed to be exempted from that curse because he was, as you know, personally sinless. He did not deserve to be cursed by the law of God. He hadn't sinned against God. But he was placed under it. From conception on, he was placed under it because he was there as the substitute for the people of God. Because we failed to keep the law of God, the curse was on us, and God took that curse and put it instead upon his son, so that from conception onwards, he was under the curse of God's law. And that included, and that meant, punishment. For him. He faced the condemnation of the law. He was conceived and born a guilty sinner, not because of his own sins, but because of all of the sins of the host of the elect upon him. Therefore, he was conceived and born into this world in order to be punished for sin. from birth onwards, subjected to the greatest punishment that anyone has ever or will ever be subjected. His incarnation meant his death on the cross. That was inevitable for him. And that was unavoidable for him. How humbling it was for him be sent 
by God into this world, made of a woman and made under the law. And yet the remarkable truth of the gospel is he was willing to do that. He was willing to go. He, as it were, said to his father, send me, send me. So great the love of Christ for us. When did God send him? God sent him, the text says, when the fullness of the time was come. And that means this. God sent him when time had come to its fullness, to its completeness. You could compare that to filling a glass of water, and you can fill it only to a certain point, and if you add any more, then it will overflow. The time for filling is over, is finished. You cannot add anything else to it. And so the fullness of the time refers to an end of time had come. There was it was time now for something to end. That's when God sent him. It was time now specifically for the Old Testament to be completed, to be finished, to come to an end. It was time for the Old Testament, which was the period of the preparation for the sending of Christ, to be done. Because all of the preparation was complete. All the preparation that was accomplished through the prophecies and the prophets, all the preparation that was done through the types and the shadows, all the preparation that was done through the temple and the sacrifices and all the activities of the church in the Old Testament, that preparation was now finished. It could not continue. And now it was time also for something new, something different. Namely, the time of fulfillment. The time of fulfillment. That's when God sent his son. The fullness of the time. The time that was right as far as God was concerned. The time that God had eternally ordained for the sending of Christ. God's perfect time. Christ could not come any sooner, nor could Christ be sent any later. When we think about the timing, God's timing in sending his son, then we certainly recognize the fact that there were a number of things that indicate that the time was right for the sending of Christ. In the providence of God, many earthly things were ready for Christ's coming into this world, and among them was the rule of the Romans, which included the Roman 
method of death by crucifixion, but it was also a time of peace that had been established by the Roman Empire, a time when there was a united empire and there was a common language, a time when it was ripe, you would say, for not only Christ to come and for Christ's death and sacrifice to take place as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, but time that was perfect in the providence of God for the spread of the gospel to all the ends of the earth, as happened from Pentecost onward. We believe God's timing was perfect. And yet, humanly speaking, we might think to ourselves and we might consider that the timing of God in sending Christ was perhaps not the most ideal time from certain points of view. For one thing, Perhaps it wasn't the best because of Caesar's decree and his, its effects upon Joseph and Mary, a decree for all the world to be taxed, a de decree requiring everyone to go back to his hometown, and therefore a decree that meant hardship for Joseph and Mary, a decree that meant they had to leave Nazareth when Mary was close to giving birth a decree that meant they had to find a place in Bethlehem for Jesus to be born when Bethlehem was full of people. A decree that ultimately meant that the Son of God had to be born in poverty without human comforts amongst cattle. We might say, why at such a time? Why at a time that meant hardships for Joseph and Mary and poverty, such abject poverty and shame for the Son of God? We might think in the second place that it seemed less than ideal as the time to send Christ because hardly anyone was waiting to welcome him. Hardly anyone waiting to welcome the Son of God into this world. Contrary to what many say, and contrary even to what is contained in some of the Christmas carols, the world was not eager for him to come. The ungodly were not, as one of the carols says, they were not pining for him. And there were not thrills of hope and joy when he appeared on this earth from mankind in general. The world was in darkness and the world was in its unbelief and it was not interested in Jesus Christ and his coming into this world except out of hatred as 
represented by King Herod, that aimed at killing the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the church? The church of that day. Well, there are only a few that were longing for him and hoping and praying. Zacharias and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, Anna and Simeon, just a handful. The church as a whole was apostate. The church as a whole at that time was characterized by immorality. The days were dark in the church. It was hard to find faith amongst those who said they were the people of God. And the Jews' response to Christ's coming was, there is no room in the inn, and there is no room in Bethlehem, and there is no room in our hearts and lives for the Son of God. And so we might reason, couldn't God have sent his son sooner? When the church, earlier in its history, its Old Testament history, was more eager for Christ to come? Or else could not God have waited and in the meantime prepared the church better for his son's coming into this world? We may not do that. We may not wonder why God didn't send him at a different time because God's timing is always perfect. Perfect for his son. Perfect for his church. Perfect for Christ and his work. And perfect for the glory of God. As regards God's timing, we note, beloved, that so often that's how God works. God often makes it seem impossible for his church and impossible for his saving work to be done. And then he does it. Then he does it. You think, for example, of the promises of God to Abraham and Sarah, the promise of a son, the promise of the land of Canaan, the promise of children as many as the stars in the sky and as the number of grains of sand on the seashore. And through it all, the promise of Christ from Abraham's seed. But God did not give them a son. And did not give them a son until it was, from a human point of view, impossible for them to have children. 
They were too old. And then God did his work. Think of the children of Israel saved from Egypt. There they were being oppressed in the land of Egypt and the the oppression increased and became worse and worse till, till it reached a point where it seemed that there was no hope of them ever escaping from the grip of the bondage of Egypt. And then God did his marvelous work and delivered them. Sometimes we might even experience that in our own lives with the work of God. Perhaps with a wayward family member and all the work and all the prayers seem to do nothing. And then God does his work. Perhaps even in the church can reflect upon the controversy and the schism in the past years and at times it may have seemed that all was over for the Protestant Reformed churches. But then God gave a rich measure of grace and gave the wisdom that was needed and restored peace again. And you may ask, why? Why does God work that way? Well, God works that way, beloved, to make it very clear that this work of salvation is completely his work and his doing. He brings us to the point of realizing there is nothing that we can do without him. And so likewise with the birth of Christ. The time was perfect in order to demonstrate that truth concerning God. Practically everyone had given up on the Messiah, on his being born. The church had been through 400 years of silence. Not a word from God. Not a prophet spoke. And if anyone was now looking for the Messiah to come... They were, for the most part, looking merely for an earthly Messiah to come, someone to rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And then the parents of Jesus were forced to travel, and Jesus Christ was born in abject poverty. And you would look at that and you would say, could this child really be the Son of God? born this way into this well. And then Herod comes on the sea, filled with hatred and jealousy, and tries to kill the Christ before he could even begin his work on this earth. And they were forced to flee to Egypt, away from Canaan, away from the church, away from the people of God. God sent his son at that time to make it abundantly clear 
that when things seem impossible, God makes it possible. When it seems that it could not happen, God makes it happen. So that there is no doubt that salvation is his work and his work alone. So he declares to us here, I sent my son at that exact time to show I am God who saves my people. And it is that which Christ accomplished as spelled out in verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Redemption, salvation, eternal life in the family of God because God has adopted us in Christ to be his children. Redeemed from the law, from under the law. In the context, as we read of that in chapter 3, Paul pointed out that God's people, with reference there to the Old Testament saints, were under the law. They were under the demands of the law. The demand of the law was do and live. But they could not do it. They could not keep it. And therefore they were under the curse of the law and the condemnation of the law, the curse of death and the condemnation of being punished eternally. And therefore they were under the punishment that the law of God demanded for sin, the righteous punishment that the sinner deserves for sin, eternity in hell. And that was true not only for the Old Testament saints, that's true also for us, because we too violate the law of God. And we are condemned by that law, because God's word is, Galatians 3 verse 10, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do that. That's true of us. We deserve that curse. But the word of God to us in our text is, I have delivered you from my law. And I have delivered you from all those aspects of the law. I've delivered you from the demands of the law and from the curse of the law and from the condemnation of the law and from the punishment of the law. Freed because I sent Christ into this world. I put him under the law in your place. And he obeyed. He kept it perfectly. Loving obedience all the way through from his conception and birth onward. 
and rescuing us from the condemnation that our sins deserve. And because he did that, we inherit the positive blessing of adoption. We are adopted, brought into the family of God, brought near to God. By nature, we are not God's sons and daughters. By nature, we are alienated from God, separated from God, and we belong to another spiritual father, Satan. Children of darkness, children of wrath, no right to be near to God and no right to have fellowship with God. God eternally purposed in his eternal decrees to fill his family, his house, his home with children. And he eternally chose us to be those children, to be heirs with Christ, who will be blessed eternally through him. And he sent Christ at the appointed time to redeem us from the law, to attain adoption for us, to attain for us the right to be children of God, the right to be in God's family. And so we have entered the family of God. That's our salvation brought into God's covenant, brought into God's family with God as our Father and Jesus Christ our elder brother and all of God's people as our brothers and sisters in the family of God. That's the blessing, that's the gracious gift of God through placing his Son under the law in our place, condemning and punishing him in our stead. And he makes us conscious of that because he gives us the spirit, verses 6 and 7. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit causes us to become so convinced that we belong to God's family, that God is our father, that we are the children of God, that we call God Abba, Father. That's what God has accomplished. Accomplished by his perfect timing and accomplished through his perfect work. Timing that demonstrates beyond all doubt that salvation is the work of God. That's what gives us true joy and true peace. That's what makes us thankful. Thankful as those who have been blessed to be delivered from the law and adopted eternally 
into the family of God. Let God be praised by us for this wonder of his grace. Amen. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for Christ, his willingness to take upon himself our curse, our punishment, so that we might be delivered from the law, freed from its bondage, and freed from its condemnation, and brought instead near to thee, our God, brought into thy blessed family forever and forever. Bless us by means of this word, we pray, and hear us for Christ's sake. Amen.